Chapter 20, Vouchers. It's weird how something from when you were little will pop back up again later in life. I remember being in the car, it must have been with Yana since Mama didn't drive, stopped at a light and looking out the window, row of houses all connected. Each house had its tiny fenced in backyard. There wasn't much grass in each yard. It was mostly dirt that had been dug up by plastic shovels, bent spoons or paws. Some of the yards had little haibashi grills and most were scattered with plastic toys, toppled big wheels and big baby dolls lying face down in the dirt. I'd like to live there, I'd said. In public housing, Gage had asked. It looks like fun, I said everyone's together. It's those very same houses that we're coming up to now. The houses aren't in part of the east end where Yana lives, outside loop with views of the harbour or Sasha lives, tiny inside streets near the shops. Instead, they're down near the warehouses. Warehouses that used to be factories, according to Gage, but now just store stuff. Remember when I used to want to live here? I asked my brother, now that I've caught up. He's looking at the slip of paper. We're not in these units, he says. We're across the street. I look up at a grey building that looks less like apartments and more like offices for the warehouses. It has a flat roof and rectangle windows. Gage and I have just gone in through the glass front door and are trying to make sense of the numbers on the mailboxes when an older man comes up the steps behind us. Gage? he asks. It's the landlord. Gage shakes his hand, introduces me and apologises for being late. Not to worry, the man says. These things happen. He leads us back outside around the corner of the building. The apartment has its own entrance, he says, as we follow him down a small stairwell. Our apartment is in the basement. The landlord opens the door and after my eyes are just to the dimness, I can see that this apartment with pictures, only it's smaller, more cellarish in person. I expected the apartment to be empty, waiting for us to move in, but it looks like someone still lives here. As the gauge and the man walk around talking about the price of heat and electricity, I try to picture the two of us all moved in. On the orange counter is an old toaster oven and a monkey cookie jar. I wonder if the people who live here bought the cookie jar at the one-stop party shop. If so, maybe Briggs can get me one like it. I'll fill it with peanut butter cookies just like the ones that Yana and I used to make. It was always my job to make crisscrosses across the top of the cookies with a fork. Only two crisscrosses, Yana would say. When I'd ask why, she'd say, just because. Instead of there being a cabinet below a sink, a brightly coloured cloth hangs down to hide the stuff that's under there. I want to peek, but I don't want to be nosy. Instead, I go look at the two bedrooms, trying to guess which one will be mine. I can tell from the furniture and the decorations that an adult sleeps in one of the rooms and a boy and his baby sister in the other. The rooms look about the same size, but for whatever reason, I picture myself in the kids' bedroom. I imagine my bed pressed against one wall, which would leave room for the desk along the door by the door. Maybe we could find a cheap desk on Craigslist or somewhere. It doesn't have to be fancy, just some place quiet for me to do homework. Now I can't help myself. I decide to be nosy after all and I look inside the closet. There isn't a bar inside the small closet for hanging clothes, just hooks against the back and the sides. But there is a bookshelf in the closet where clothes have been folded and stuffed in. I bet Gage could put up a bar though, if I asked him. Yana would want me to hang my uniforms on actual hangers, not on hooks. Besides, if I can hang some of my clothes on a bar, then I can use the bookshelf to set up my paper things. I'll have a room for all three stories and the top can be a rooftop terrace instead of a backyard. I'll be able to play paper things anytime I want and no one will have to step around them. If I have Sasha over and don't want her to see them, I can just shut my closet door. 
Yeah, I think this will work, I hear Gage say, and I bounce up and down in my new room. I can't believe that we have our own place, our very own place to come home to every night. Do you have the voucher? The landlord asks. I stand next to Gage so I hear all the details. Voucher? From the housing authority. I can tell that my brother is confused. He's pausing so the man will say more and he won't look ignorant. The rent on this apartment is subsidised. In order to live here, you have to prove, have proof from the housing authority that your income falls below a certain level. Can't I just tell you what I make? Says Gage. We'll get my boss to write something. Trust me, it's low, really low. He laughs and so does the man. Yeah, I get you, says the landlord, but the city has to make sure. I can't rent this out and out from under the people who have completed the paperwork and are still waiting for housing. Gage's face shudders like it used to when Gage, when Yana started in on him about something or other. I can tell that he's done listening, that he's given up hope. Where do we get the voucher, I ask. The housing authority, but don't get your hopes up, he says to me. It will take days, maybe even weeks for you to qualify. Folks have been looking at this apartment since seven this morning. It will be gone by tomorrow. So now we're back on the streets and once again, I'm running in my flapping shoe, trying to keep up with my brother. Let's go to the housing authority right now, I shout. It's closed, Ari, he yells back at me like I don't know anything. It's closed, and even if it were open, I don't know what I have to take there to prove that I make crap. Can't you just give them your boss's phone number? He'll tell them what you make. I just got the job. It's probably not even considered steady work yet. And what will I write when they ask for our current address? My mind starts working on possible answers. Yana's address, or maybe Chloe's, or Briggs's, surely the housing authority people wouldn't follow up to verify that we live there, right? But I don't make any suggestions. No idea will be the right one. No words will make Gage feel better. Not right now. Eventually, Gage's pace slows, and I catch up and walk by his side. I can tell he's thinking. I want him to think out aloud, but that isn't his style. Finally, he turns to me and says in a voice much kinder than the one he's been using since we left the apartment, you must have been scared when I didn't pick you up at Head Start. I shrug like it was no big deal, but tears sting my eyes. Now I'm the tired one. Tired of uncertainty. Tired of the unfamiliar. Tired of trying to figure things out. For a few moments, I want to be five years old again. I want someone to pluck me in front of a Disney movie and ask, would you like an apple juice or grape? I'm so sorry, Ari, he says, and he puts his arm around me. So sorry, God. What if you hadn't found me? I messed up big time. He stops and turns me in turns me and toward him forgive me maybe i say as he squeezes me against his side i need to call carol i add i've been going back and forth in my head all day but now i'm sure we have to get a phone he says what i want to say is talk to yana tell her that we don't really have an apartment maybe she reactivate your phone but i don't instead i say phones are too expensive not all of them, says Gage. There are pay-as-you-go phones. Beside, a phone isn't a luxury. It's a necessity. You need to be able to reach me. My bus needs to be able to reach me. And Chloe, I think, but I don't say that out loud. Something tells me Chloe's patience would run out altogether if she couldn't reach Gage when she wanted to. I start to ask Gage where he'll get the money, but I already know. The money we have to come from the first and the last month's rent savings. Just an hour ago, it felt like we were so close to getting an apartment. Now it feels like a lifetime away. We ride the bus all the way out to Walmart, where it takes Gage forever to choose a phone. The pretty sales clerk tries to sell him a more expensive model, a phone with data plan or a phone with flashy features. Gage keeps repeating the same thing. I want the cheapest phone you have, and I don't want to keep my old number. 
The sales clerk doesn't think that keeping his old number will be possible, but it's obvious that she likes Gage, and in the end, after a ridiculous long call to our new telephone company, she finds a way. Still, I can tell when we go to the checkout and Gage pulls $50 from his wallet that he feels anything but glad. I've often heard the expression, two steps forward, one step back. Now I know what it means. That's what it's like trying to live on your own. Maybe two steps forward and 10 steps back. I don't ask where we're sleeping tonight. I don't have to. When Gage is feeling beaten down, we stay away from friends. Being with friends who have jobs and apartments, he says, makes him feel like a loser. The streets are getting darker. Headlights glare in my eyes. Tonight, we're heading for the shelter. 21. Checks. Technically, we're not allowed to stay at the lighthouse. First of all, you're supposed to be between 12 and 20 years old, so I don't qualify. Second of all, you're supposed to fill out paperwork when you check in, just like at the family shelter. But Wes doesn't make us register. He sneaks us into lighthouse, which is not a lighthouse at all, but an old-looking three-storey white and brown apartment house. The offices and kitchens are on the first floor, the second floor is the boys' floor, and the third floor is the girls'. Each floor holds up to eight kids for a total of eight of 16 people per night. But Wes usually slips us into a little first floor storage room where we sleep on a mats on the floor. You would think that staying hidden downstairs would keep our stuff safer. You'd be wrong. Kids are always raiding the downstairs rooms looking for anything to take with them. So the first time when Gage and I left to use the bathroom, stuff was taken. Now we know to leave the storage room one at a time. Fortunately, I can lock the door from the inside when Gage is gone. We haven't had dinner, but we're on our way to the lighthouse. West only works until eight, and it must be getting close to that now. About a half a block away from the lighthouse, we stop in front of a parking garage so that Gage can call West. Only for whatever reason, West doesn't answer. Gage doesn't try again. Nothing. What's tonight, he asks, but he doesn't wait for an answer. West should be working. Sleet starts to fall. I pull up my hood. My toes, especially the ones in the flappy shoe, are numb. I jump up and down to wake them back up. I'm hungry, but I don't say so. I wonder what the snack will be at Lighthouse tonight. I might ask Wesk if he can grab me two shares before he leaves. That will make Gage mad, but I don't care. I was so busy making snowflakes that I hardly ate anything at Head Start. Ariana, a man's voice calls from across the street. I look around to see who might be calling me. For a moment, I'm convinced that this has something to do with West, that they're in trouble for trying to sneak into Lighthouse, though I know that's crazy. And then I see who it is. Reggie, the airplane man, waves to me from across the street. Amelia is with him and she wags her tail when she sees me. How lucky is this? How Reggie, I call. I was hoping to see you. I have something for you. Reggie crosses the street and I try to introduce him to Gage, but Gage is concentrating on the frantic texting. In a confetti toss of words, I tell Reggie about his plane, the cupola, Gage's new job, Fran's bike plan, but he notices my teeth chattering and interrupts me to ask where we're headed. I could walk with you for a while and tell me the whole story, he says. We're kind of hoping to stay there, I say, pointing to the shelter, but I can tell from Gage's eyes that he heard me and he wants me to shut up. Shelter full? Reggie asks when Gage finally looks up from his phone. Gage nods. I wonder what the real story is. Look, says Reggie, I don't mean to be presumptuous, but I've got a place you can stay tonight. It's not the Taj Mahal, it's not even the Motel 6, but it's warm. We appreciate the offer, sir. Gage starts to say, pulling up his walk-up, but Reggie interrupts him. You'd be actually be doing me a favour. I'm hoping to stay at the men's shelter tonight, have a shower and maybe watch a little TV, but they don't allow dogs. If you could stay at my place and watch Amelia for me, I'd be grateful. I look at Gage's with pleading eyes, but he hesitates. It's pretty modest, Reggie says apologetically. 
There isn't a proper bathroom, though I make do with a camping toilet, but it's dry and warm and no one will bother you. He goes on to explain that the place he rents is a heated storage unit down on Marginal Way. I moved all my stuff in when I lost the house, he says. It's a little crowded, but I've managed to set it up almost like an apartment. And you're not planning to stay there tonight? Gage asks, sounding almost suspicious. I want to scold him for being so rude, but I remind myself that he doesn't know Reggie and Amelia like I do. Besides, Gage has never been one for trusting new people. I will if I have to, Reggie says. I can't very well abandon this old girl, he says, reaching down to scratch Amelia behind the ears. But I had been looking forward to that shower and seeing some of my buddies at the shelter. The wind picks up speed and the sleet hits my face like a million tiny print pricks. Finally, I can't take it any longer. Please say yes, I shout, tugging on Gage's arm. Please. Gage looks at me and shrugs and mutters. Okay then, thanks. We follow Reggie across town to the storage unit. First, Reggie has to tap a code on a keypad clipped to a tall metal fence. After we get through the gate in the fence, he has to type the code into a box outside the door of a tray big building, of a big brick building, which looks kind of like a garage. Once we're inside, he leads us down a brightly lit hall of shed doors until we arrive at number 26. Then he taps in another code and the door opens to reveal boxes. All I can see is a wall of boxes, boxes that seem to go all the way up to all to the ceiling. I try to hide my disappointment because I don't want to seem ungrateful, but I think Reggie was stretching the truth quite a bit to describe this place as an apartment-like. To me, it just looks like a storage shed, a very crowded storage shed. But then Amelia leads us on a small path through the boxes. A path? I haven't even seen. Reggie motions for us to follow her, and so we do. And lo and behold, we come to into a long, skinny room set up just like an apartment. Along the wall to the left is a camp cot. Next to the cot is a nightstand with a big flashlight on it, and beside that a camouflage print dog bed. Along the wall to the right is a long narrow table, and on the table is a plastic jug of water, a small coffee maker, a cooking burner, and a toaster oven. Next to the table is a little refrigerator, the kind that you see in back-to-school flyers advertising stuff for dorm rooms. On top of the refrigerator is a cooking pot, a cup, a plate, and a pitcher full of cooking utensils. In the middle of the room sits a handsome coffee table. Right now there's a model aeroplane being built on the coffee table. A plastic one, not a paper one. Reggie Shaw has a thing for planes. The camping porta potty sits in the corner at the foot of the bed. Like I said, it's pretty modest. Reggie sounds almost embarrassed. It's wonderful, I say. Amelia wags her, table, her tail in agreement. Reggie blushes and takes a mattress pad from a box and places it on the floor. He also retrieves a rolled-up sleeping bag and a few quilts, which he tosses onto the cot. You guys hungry? I've got corned beef hash or tuna noodles. I nod, eager to see Reggie prepare a meal in this secret house, but Gage bristles. Hey man, Gage says, you don't have to feed us too. It's my pleasure, says Reggie. I'd rather eat with the two of you than some slobs at the shelter. He winks at me and I smile in return. While Reggie mixes up the tuna helper, he tells me where to dig for more dishes and cups. Mixed in the boxes are a plastic tyre, a bicycle tyre, a pump, a pair of ski boots and a plastic sled. The boxes themselves are filled with tools, pictures in frames, candles. The candles make me think of electricity when I ask about it. Gage points out that the outlet on the overhead light that powers the room. This place is great, I say. How much does it cost a month? Ari, Gage snaps. But Reggie doesn't seem to mind the question. It's cheaper than renting an apartment, he says. Even Section 8, but I don't recommend living in a storage unit if you can help it. It's hard to live without plumbing. Besides, it's technically against the law for me to sleep here, but it's against the law for me to sleep in the park or at the bus station too. So what are you going to do when the shelters are full? He asks with a shrug.
What section it eat? I ask. Gay speaks up. It's like an apartment we saw tonight. Units that are set aside for people who are income qualified. I want to ask Reggie why he isn't living in the house where all the furniture came from. But I'm worried the question is too rude and I don't want him to change his mind about us letting, letting us stay here. Instead, I polish off my tuna helper and pull Fran's bicycle ad out of the backpack, along with her $3, and ask Reggie if, he'd be, if he would make her an aeroplane too. I tell him about the wish I made on my plane and how it came true. She's paying me to make her a paper aeroplane? Yep, I say, but if you don't want to, oh, I don't mind doing it, and the money will come in handy for dog food. He hands me back a dollar. This one's for you, though, he says, for being my business partner. I shake my head. Oh, no, she wanted you to have it, but I wouldn't have had this job if it not for you. You were the one who told your friend about the plane I gave you, and you were the one who came up with the idea of making a wishing plane. I look at Gage, who nods. That's it. It's okay. Thanks, I say, reluctantly taking the dollar. I can't help remembering that Reggie needed money for Amelia and wondering how he bought the tuna and how he pays the rent for his storage unit. Disability check, says Reggie, as if he's reading my mind. He begins to fold Fran's plane. I get a check each month, but it's not enough to make it through 30 days. Were you in the service? Gage asks. Royagy nods. Air Force, a pilot. Our dad was in the army, Gage says. He was killed in Afghanistan, I say. Reggie nods. I'm sorry to hear that. Did you lose your house because of your disability? Gage asks. Now it's my turn to shoot him a look for being too nosy. But again, Reggie doesn't seem to mind the question. He hands me Fran's plane and says, yeah, you might say my disability led to the loss of a lot of things. Reggie is quiet, but then he looks up and smiles. But I'm luckier than a lot of folks, and you can be sure I'm grateful for all that I've got, like new friends. He raises his cup of water to us. To new friends, Gage and I say together.